Well, Christmas is about the coming of God in Jesus. Obviously, it's the celebration of a birth and a life. But who is he? Why bother? Why celebrate his birth? What did he do? What is the significance of Christmas? Well, these kind of questions can be answered a number of different ways with God's word. We can look at what was said by those around his birth, like the angels or Mary. We can look at what scripture says from Jesus himself. What did he say about himself? We can look at what the scriptural record tells us about what he did in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We can look at what the later New Testament writers wrote about in the epistles about who he is and why he came and what he did. One way of exploring the Christ of Christmas is to consider his names. What do the angels say to Mary and Joseph about what he should be called? We could look at that. We could look at what he called himself. What did Jesus say his name was and how did he refer to himself? What does scripture call him? For us today in Western culture, names don't mean a whole lot. We name our children something because we like the sound of it. Because uh, it reminds us of someone who has that name. Maybe it's in the family a generation or two ago. Many people today don't know what their name means. Many names are so new, they don't mean anything. That's okay. But in ancient cultures, especially in biblical Hebrew culture, the name was a window into the person. It was like a window into their soul, their being. It was wrapped up with who they are in a way that we really can't imagine today in 21st century America. It had almost prophetic qualities to it. The name would be what this person would be like and what they would do. Or looking backwards, it would have historical significance. It would reflect what they were and what they did. And surely this was truer of Jesus Christ than anyone else in history. So we can know him in part through his names. We'll talk about his names throughout the month of December, starting tonight. In Philippians 2, Paul says that Jesus bears a name that is above every name. Look at with me in Philippians 2. We've already read the passage, verses 1 through 11. Look more specifically at verses 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there's some question about what, which name Paul had in mind when he said there's a name bestowed upon Jesus that's above every name. Is it Jesus in verse 10? That's the name at which every knee will bow. 
Is it Lord in verse 11? Yeah, it could be a title, but it could be a personal name. Jesus means God saves. And that's significant. Matthew 1, 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Lord is also significant. Not only signifying authority, but deity. And probably more than just deity, it's probably the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Old Testament personal name of God, Yahweh. Well, there's also Christ in this passage. That's more of a title or an office than a name, but it's, it's also significant, rich with meaning, and, and often used in Scripture as something like a name, yeah, like it is in verse 5 of Philippians 2 and again in verse 11. That means Christ means anointed. It means Jesus is the Messiah. It means that Jesus is the promised one. Let's put all that on hold. We will come back to all that on Christmas Eve. We will focus on verses 9 through 11 of Philippians 2 on Christmas Eve, and we'll talk about the exaltation of Christ, and we'll look at what name he bears that is above every name. Tonight, what I'd like us to do is back up in this passage of Philippians 2 and see what leads Paul to that exultant exaltation of Christ in verses 9 through 11. What came before? Let's go back to verse 1. We'll see four things in this passage tonight. The first is Jesus' gifts. His gifts. In verse 1, we see his gifts. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and Sympathy. These are Jesus' gifts or his benefits or the results that come in salvation. And notice there's an if at the beginning of it all, a condition. It's not suspicion that leads Paul to begin with an if. If you have any of this, I doubt it. Oh, no, he's already boasted about his confidence in the Philippian church's salvation and their fruit. It's not suspicion, but, but it is a condition, and, and it forms a, a basis for what he'll go on to say. In verses 2 and following, Paul will give some commands. There's first a condition in verse 1, if, and then he'll go on to a command. And so it's like an if-then kind of thing. If these things are true, then do this and this and this. The ifs are simply fundamental to Christianity. They are the results of being in Christ. You see that? If there's any encouragement in Christ, for those who have union with Christ, for those whose life is tied up in his life, and their dying to self has been tied up in, in Christ's death and resurrection. They've been buried with him. That's, that's what it means to be in Christ. To be united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. To have hitched your hope to him and him alone and for his life to be yours now. That brings encouragement and comfort. Is there any comfort from God's love? Is there any participation in the Spirit? Of course, these all 
They all go together. If one's true, then all are true or none are true. Those in Christ have encouragement from him. Those in Christ have a comfort from God's love shown upon the cross. Those who are in Christ also have a participation or sharing in the Spirit. The Spirit now lives within, dwells and leads and guides and illuminates and convicts and, and simply brings comfort. Is there any affection and sympathy known and, and felt in the heart because of these realities that come to us in Christ, that is, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection? These are simply the hallmarks of the gospel, we could say, or the rich benefits that are those who know God's saving plan in Jesus, Jesus' gifts. Are they yours? Does that if stand out to you in a more suspicious sort of way? Like, I don't know that I have this. I, I think I believe in Jesus. I think I know he died on the cross. But that's where it stopped. It just feels like it's unrelational, unemotional. Look at what it says here. Those in Christ have his encouragement. They have comfort from God's love. They share in the spirit, and they know God's affection in, and sympathy. So that's the if, Jesus' gifts. Secondly, we see Jesus' people. Jesus' people. Verses 2 through 4 move from a, a personal or individual sort of relationship now to a corporate one. If this is true of you... What does it mean for those around you in the church? He'll talk about unity, humility, and sacrifice related to Jesus' people. Unity in verse 2. He says in verse 2, If so, if that's true, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and one Mind, unity, described four ways, at least two, uh, being related to the mind or, or related to truth or realities. What realities? Well, how about the ones that just came before in verse 1? Encouragement in Christ and comfort from God's love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy. Share these things. Know that same love. Be in full accord with one another. This would complete Paul's joy, he says, if they would grow in their unity for each other. Paul's writing to the Philippians uh, partly because they have been supporting him financially while he's been in prison. And partly because there seems to have been some disunity in the church. They love their Paul. They rally around Paul. But in chapter 4, there are two ladies who have a famous war going on. They need help. And Paul rebukes them publicly in this letter, calls them out by name. Unity will be a big part of the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians as a whole. And here we see the need for that with the command. Finish off my joy. Top it to the, to the, to the top by being unified, pursuing this, fighting for it. 
How? How do you get to have such oneness? Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind? How do you get there? Well, think about this individually. You hear this command. Be of the same mind, be of the same love, be of one mind. How do you get there with someone else? It doesn't start with them. It starts with you. It's not about others. It starts first with you. The problem isn't them. It's you. As far as you're concerned, the problem is you. That's why Paul leads to the issue of humility in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Boy, we're not wired this way, are we? I mean, we have this, this impulse within us that says, I am the most important thing going on right now in this scenario, in this relationship, in this problem. We, we think of ourselves very quickly. Thinking of others is a discipline that's hard to develop. Thinking higher of others than we do of ourselves is one that we like to portray, but often not actually feel or think. Well, how do you get there? How do you have that kind of selflessness, that kind of humility, that kind of other-mindedness? Well, verse 4, sacrifice is related to this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You have to look out for their interests. You have to be watching for their needs. You have to be, you have to be watching and looking for opportunities to lower self and lift up others. Again, we need these well, these commandments, don't we? We need unity. We need humility. We need other-mindedness. We need sacrifice so much because self-focus seems so natural. And prioritization of self is so easy. And oh, how we need this in our culture at Christmas time, in the month of December. Oh, we like to portray that Christmas is about others. But I don't know about you. I, I'm, I'm probably the most short-tempered in December than I am any other month. Right? Just sort of like there's this, this thing going on. Everything's teeming. That I'm kind of on edge. You go to Target, and, and I'm either going to pay for this and get out of there, or I'm going to elbow a guy in the, in the, in the lip. I'm not sure what's going to happen. We'll see. Pray for Pastor Ryan. Right? We need other-mindedness, humility, looking out for others and their interests, especially in a month like this. How do we get there? Well, that's what leads Paul to verse 5 and following. Here he brings us to Jesus' mind. Jesus' mind. We've seen Jesus' gifts and, and Jesus' people, and now Jesus' mind the reason I'm using mind here is because that's what's in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then from there, he'll go, verse 6 through 8, into a section about Christ's mindset and his mission in coming from heaven to earth in the incarnation and the cross. And eventually, he'll talk about his exaltation. Now, these verses, verses 6 through 8, are really important in their own right for what they teach us about Jesus and his natures, about his person, about about being God and man, things like hypostatic union. When's the last time you thought about the hypostatic union? That's two natures becoming one, and we get that kind of deep theological detail in part from a passage like this, in large part from a passage like this. So it's easy to look at verses 6 through 8 and see Jesus being equal with God and taking the form of a servant and and emptying himself and and, and just want to think about Jesus' nature or natures. But then we could easily forget the context and the flow of what we've been talking about so far. The language before clearly tells us that there's a purpose in talking about Jesus like this. You can see how that call to humility that he gave to the Philippians, that call to selflessness and sacrifice, like he said in verses 2 through 4, it's now being played through with a different lens, a Jesus lens. The same themes are being shown, not as a command of the Philippians, but as an example from Jesus. He's an example. He was... Humble, sacrificial, servant-like, on their behalf and in their place. But he's not just an example. Jesus' humble sacrifice, yes, is our model. That's clearly Paul's primary point, you could say, in these verses. But he's so much more than a model. We have to remember that. He's so much more than an example. Jesus is our salvation. So when we think of Jesus coming from heaven to earth and taking on flesh and bearing the cross in humility and sacrifice and service for others, we have to remember we're the beneficiaries of that. That's us. He came for us. He'll call his name Jesus for he'll... Save his people from their sins. And that's what this is describing for us. His life and his death and his resurrection. And hence, our salvation hope. So, this part of scripture is showing us Jesus as an example of sacrifice and servantry. But not just an example of sacrifice and servantry. He's also our salvation. But the cross is not just our salvation either. It also has shaping power to it, and that's part of Paul's point. Notice how verse 5 is worded when he says, Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's, It's a mindset that's in Jesus, and somehow it's ours already in a sense anyway. His mind is a gift. It's part of that union with Christ. That means that grace is not just forgiveness, it's also formation. It's not just salvation, it's also 
shaping. The cross isn't just example, and it's also not just salvation. It also has mind-bending implications. I think you see this really clearly in chapter 3. I think these same themes are continuing into chapter 3. Look at verse 8. Here Paul says, I count everything, every bit of righteousness I would have, I, I, everything that would be gain on the righteous ometer, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This is Jesus is our salvation. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. But here's where the cross is more than salvation. It's personal. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, and that I might become like him in his death, and that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The cross is both saving and it is shaping. It is transforming. So, why Paul launches into this theology of Jesus and his birth and life and death and resurrection and exaltation is so that we would fill our minds and hearts with this glorious story in such a way that our minds and hearts are bent around the shape of the cross and it has implications in the church for how we relate to one another. It's what shapes us into humility. It's what shapes us into considering others more important than ourselves. It's the only thing that can shape us into loving each other when we're not lovely. Let me mention some specifics about these verses. Verse 6 mentions Christ in eternity past, before his birth, before what we call the incarnation. And it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. And that doesn't mean that he had some God-like qualities or appearance. It means instead he was of the same nature, of the same essence. He was made of the same stuff. He did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't need to reach for it. He already had it. It wasn't something to pursue. It wasn't something to long for, wish for, or try to achieve. It was already his. He was fully God from the beginning, just like John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Christ in eternity past. Then verse 7 tells us about Christ in his incarnation. He didn't think equality with God was a thing to be grasped or, or needed to be reached. Instead, he emptied himself 
by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. When Paul writes that Jesus emptied himself, he doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of his divinity when he came to earth. It doesn't mean either that he emptied himself of of divine attributes. He emptied himself instead of, of all the divine privileges that were his. He emptied himself, this might be confusing, but it's helpful. He emptied himself not by taking away anything that was divine, but by adding the human to it. He emptied himself. He sacrificed himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. That doesn't mean that Christ was only human-like or only appeared human, just like he was fully God in verse 6. Here it's clear he was also fully human. So here's some theology that may make you scratch your head or your head blow up. Jesus was one divine human person with two natures. In the early church got it right when they said that Jesus in his two natures These two natures are united without mixture or confusion or separation or division. The two natures are somehow one. That means that Jesus didn't put on the God mask and then the human mask. He didn't sometimes operate out of the divine half of his brain and then other times operate out of the human side of his brain. No, He operated out of the totality of his divine human person. These are complicated theological matters. And we could go deeper even than this, but at root, these these basic truths about Jesus as God and man in one person, these are simply drawn from and necessitated by these verses here in Philippians 2. Jesus took on flesh, became a man, was the God-man, in order to be a servant, in the form of a servant, not just a man, that's humbling enough to go from divine to divine and human. But he came, as a form, he came in the form of a servant, a suffering servant. I think he has Isaiah 53 in mind there where Isaiah predicted the one who would come. He'd be the the suffering servant of God. And Jesus came as a servant, all right, and he sacrificed all the way to the cross, a form of death which uniquely fits that violent language in Isaiah 53. Paul's reminding us that Jesus not only died, Jesus not only was humble, but he was the promised one, the Messiah, the fulfillment, the suffering servant of Isaiah. In verse 8, we see Christ in his death more explicitly. Being Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, his death is our example, but... It was a sacrificial death. It was a death for people. That's Paul's whole point here. It's a death 
which is for others. He put his interest to the side for our interests. It's a servant-like sacrifice. It's our model. It's also our salvation. But it also shapes our hearts and minds into his will and ways. Then we come, and only then do we come to those verses in 9, 9, 10, and 11, where we see Jesus' name, the fourth thing. Jesus' gifts, Jesus' people, Jesus' mind, and we see Jesus' name in verses 9 through 11. Now we begin to see how and why Jesus bears a name that is above every name. And what precisely that name is, we'll come back to that on Christmas Eve. But for now, just revel in it. Revel in the exaltation of Christ to stoop from heaven's highs down to earth's lows and to the poverty to which he stooped and the humility to which he stooped, the servantry to which he stooped, the sacrifice to which he stooped for us. We revel in the exaltation of Christ because... God has, has highly exalted him. God has bestowed on him the name that's above every name. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is he your confession? Did you tonight again bow in your hearts before this great king? And if so, remember the encouragement we have in Christ. Verse 1. If so, remember the consolation of love that we have. Remember the comfort that we have. Remember the sharing of the spirit that he bought for us with his blood. Remember the affection and sympathy shown to us at the cross and every day since. And live that out with others. Be unified with each other because he died for you all. He forgave that person. Yeah, they're stupid, but he loves them. And you're more stupid, and he loves you too. It's transforming, isn't it? It's humbling, isn't it? It's amazing to think how much God loves others. We should too. It's amazing to think how much Jesus forgave others. We should too. It's amazing in a sense, how much he thinks of others. We should too. And only then is it a good position to be in to, to marvel at how good he's been to you and how much he's forgiven you and how much he cares for you. What a privilege it is to get to Live like Jesus to others. To be a small, a very pathetic, small Jesus. But one like him to others. To have his mind as ours. It would only happen as we look to Christ and keep looking and looking and looking and looking. The cross is mind-bending, shaping us into his will and way and his love for others. We look to Christ throughout this month of December. We look to Christ in his word all through the year. 
And we look to Christ. We gaze upon him also in the supper, the communion meal that he's given us to remember him by, to remember specifically this little nugget. Life, death, righteousness, sacrifice, finished work, all done. A remembrance meal picturing his body and his blood spilled for us.